What if you could have a crow's nest view of the inflection points as companies grew and saw exactly how they navigated these often rocky and treacherous waters? Much like Megan Quinn earlier in this season, Vas Natarajan, partner at the venture capital firm Excel, has a high perch which lends him a broad perspective into the ways that design teams scale and how they integrate with their developer partners. In this episode, we chat with Vaz about operationalizing hiring, the hallmarks of a healthy team at any stage of growth, and some of the ways that developers and designers can be more effective and efficient in their relationships. So get ready to climb the rigging to a clear view of the ways that design teams hire, scale, and work effectively with their partners. Hi, this is Aaron Walter. And I'm Eli Woolery. We hope you're enjoying the Design Better podcast, learning a thing or two that will help you in your career. We put a lot of time and energy into producing these interviews with top industry leaders, and we want to share their wisdom with as many people as possible. You can help us achieve that goal by taking just a minute to review the podcast on iTunes or Google Play. Your review will make this podcast more discoverable and will help us reach new people in the design and business community. We appreciate your support. Now let's get to the show. Vas Natarajan, partner at the venture capital firm Excel Partners, has spent eight years investing in collaboration software companies like Envision, Frame.io, Ironclad, and Spoke, and developer-focused companies like Segment. Given his experience with a variety of companies at various stages of growth, we're curious to talk with Voss about what makes a company successful and what role design is playing in shifting industries. Voss Natarajan, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. We're, we're super excited to have you. And um, let's just kick it off with one question I hinted at in the intro there. And what, what in your mind makes a company successful? And um, how are industries shifting? I guess it's kind of a three-part question. We can always come back to it. Um, how are industries shifting and, and what role is design playing in this shift? So there are two shifts or forces at play here that we really pay attention to. You know, one is the rise of software and the other is the rise of design within the development of software. So I'm going to try and unpack each of them. In answer to your first question, how are industries shifting? Well, software is rewiring every corner of the economy full stop. You know, every major industry has become or is becoming very much software centric. Simple example that look at the cars that we drive today. You know, these are effectively computers on wheels. There are something like 10 to 15 million lines of code in a car today. They have multiple microprocessors. They're connected to the internet. Some cars soon enough will be able to drive themselves. And that is very different from, you know, the relatively dumb manual Toyota Corolla that I was driving as a teenager. And it's not just the auto industry. You know, we're talking about how healthcare is delivered. Look at the rise of digital therapeutics and telemedicine software on your phone, um, how homes are sold, you know, the residential real estate market. Look at services like Open Door, which can sell a home in under 60 days now, largely coordinated through software with very little human involvement. Um, or even just how you get fresh food or groceries on a week to week basis. You know, now you have great apps and services like Instacart or Good Eggs where can very quickly dial up a, a grocery list. So across industries, we're seeing all of these processes being refactored into software. And that's a super exciting trend because as we know, 
software tends to be more efficient than humans at a whole range of tasks. So to us, if an industry hasn't yet been touched by software, well, it appears to only be a matter of time. Now, the, the second shift that we're paying attention to in response to your second question is the rise of design within the development of said software. So if it's true that software is rewiring every major industry, we will logically see an explosion of interfaces where interfaces previously didn't exist. No surprise, if you want to use software, if you want to manipulate it, if you want to input data, if you want to change parameters, whatever it is, you need intuitive, easy-to-understand interfaces so that humans could take advantage of software-level innovation. So easy example, back to cars. You know, If you peek inside a Tesla, you'll see a beautiful 15-inch dashboard in the center console, and it gives you access to you know, all the major functions of the car. And that's a great example of an interface that exists today that didn't exist 10 to 15 years ago. Interfaces are fundamentally a design problem. You know, it's one thing to write software to change how a car is operated or how homes are sold or how uh, food is delivered. And it's another thing to design an interface that allows anyone regardless of their technical proficiency, to take advantage of software. And that's where design comes in, because if we're going to be able to ride the software revolution, well, we're going to need great design to translate all of that code and all of that machine-level innovation into something that's actually human-centered. So Excel can invest in any number of companies out there. And clearly, you know, technology infrastructure is amazing. It's better than it's ever been. And we can create so many things so quickly, but um, it's only certain products that are really successful. What is it that makes them successful? Is it technology? Is it the people that are making them? Um, is it design, the way that we use it? How do you think about that as you choose where to put the poker chips? Well, there's some important background to establish here, which is to say, yes, Technology infrastructure is amazing, and it's making it easier than ever to bring new products to market. Software development has been democratized by things like on-demand infrastructure from AWS or third-party APIs like Stripe and Algolia and Segment, which are solving all sorts of hard problems around payments and search and analytics. Um, today, you can click through GitHub and you have the world's library of open source code that is free to use and, and adopt. And so all of that combined is wonderfully opening up software development to so many more people. Um, because so much of what goes into great software, great products is in some ways pre-built for us. You know, we just have to stitch it together. And so in light of that, in light of all of these technology barriers to entry lowering over the years, well, so many products are now flooding the market. And so as investors, we have to be much, much more discerning. To us, I think there are two clear traits that separate products that achieve success and scale and those that don't. And the first is probably more obvious, which is, does this product fulfill a clear and pressing need in the market? And is the technology hard to replicate? 
So we're looking for products with a defensible but a very resonant value proposition. Take something like Dropbox. You know, in a world with all of this device fragmentation, you know, mobile, desktop, and tablet devices, uh, where knowledge workers and consumers want to move seamlessly between the work and the home, you know, the market was yearning for a very simple way to sync and store files. And that is not an easy problem to solve. You know, it requires a very nuanced understanding of data, of storage, of file compression, of networking, uh, understanding the idiosyncrasies of all the various operating systems uh, between Windows and iOS and Android. So what we experience with Dropbox and, you know, its magic and its simplicity as an app, I think in many ways masks a lot of the complexity and the rich defensible IP beneath the surface. So Dropbox to me is a great example of a product with a a resonant but a very defensible uh, value proposition. The second trait, and I think this is becoming absolutely critical in today's day and age, where again, so many products have flooded the market, which is, um, can a product efficiently find its audience? You know, how do you distribute this product? Can it self-propagate over time? Can it spread itself? You know, think of something like a Slack or an Atlassian or a, or a Dropbox, which had these fantastically viral distribution models? Um, if not, well, can you efficiently sell a product and bring it to market with a, a leveraged sales and marketing motion? So there are so many great products out there that just can't find their audience. And for founders, for entrepreneurs, that's something that deserves a lot of creative and critical thinking early in the product development process. Because Yes, even if you can build something that's really innovative, well, can you get it into the hands of your end users? So those are the two things we think about when we're imagining whether a product will succeed or not. It, is there a clear value proposition that's backed by defensible technology? And can this product efficiently find its audience? So just following up on that, that line of thinking, um, you have to do some, some math on a regular basis to try to assess the potential value of a company, uh, which you know, uh, affects term decisions and, and all kinds of things. But um, how important is design as you're assessing the value of a company? Well, the truth is, you know, we're investing very early at the seed and series A stages of a company. So we're investing in two founders and a PowerPoint. Um, it's often pre-product market fit, and maybe the teams themselves are incomplete. So I wouldn't say that design is a determinant to whether we invest or not, but what is important and I think very related is having a deep understanding and an appreciation for your end user. So as a founding team, our customers your North Star. Because I think it's this notion of being fixated on the customer that ultimately manifests itself in even investing in design. So again, as a founding team, how do you make products that are as human-centered as possible? Um, you know, inversely, you probably aren't going to have good design if you aren't customer-centric as a company. So 
What we want to see at this early stage is a product hypothesis that's been clearly informed by talking to end users. You know, there's a substantial difference between companies that pitch having done no customer research and those that have done 100 customer interviews. But design will ultimately come from this deeper company value of wanting to put customers first. And so that's really what we're looking for when choosing to invest. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash design better support for design better comes from uplift desk creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier it's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work sobering huh that's roughly ninety thousand hours at work over your lifetime imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation it can be devastating on your health That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. So Voss, earlier you mentioned uh, the importance of the team as you're evaluating whether or not to make an investment. And then you're obviously continuing, assuming you do invest, continuing to support that team um, as, as an advisor and connecting them with resources. What are, what are some of the hallmarks that you see of a healthy team at, at any stage of growth? Well, we talked earlier about being customer-centric. Um, and ideally, that's becoming more pronounced as a company grows. You, know, you can never lose sight of the customer. But two other things that we observe in our healthiest teams, one is they're very data aware, top to bottom, and two, they're very goal-oriented. So what does it mean to be data aware? Well, it means everyone across the organization, whether you're a manager or an individual contributor, can tell you what the company's KPIs are or what the the key product metrics are. Uh, Data is becoming the common language that binds together different functional teams in these types of companies. 
Because um, as we know, companies are a composite of product and engineering and design and sales, marketing and support. Well, how do these teams actually communicate in a unified way? And I think a common set of metrics that express the performance of the business or of the product can meaningfully unify effort across these teams that are each contributing different things. Um, and over time, data is becoming the root of all decision-making. You know, there's a powerful cultural benefit here too, because if everyone knows and understands and can speak the language of the data, well, that drives transparency and it helps everyone have a shared ownership and responsibility over moving the business forward. I'd say the second hallmark we observe in our healthiest teams is that they are very goal-oriented. So across the company, everyone understands what our metrics are. Well, what do we aspire those metrics to be, you know, this quarter, this year? How are we driving those numbers forward day to day? That might manifest itself in a set of OKRs or some other goal setting program, but our best teams are very planful and very articulate about where the company needs to be over a short, medium, and long horizon. So effective teams, uh, as we've observed, can measure their business, they can articulate the goals behind those metrics, and they can then translate that into the work that needs to get done up and down an organization. Klaus, just wanted to move over to um, a question around leadership. And, you know, again, you're, you're looking deeply at these teams that are coming in, seeking investment. Um, what, what are some of the leadership qualities that you're looking for in the founders that you evaluate? Well, I'd say one of the things that we are reacting to is the founder's storytelling ability. So what's the origin story of this team? You know, every great superhero has an origin story. Um, what is it about this team and their set of experiences or backgrounds that has shaped their worldview? You know, what's compelling them to want to dedicate their lives to this specific problem? Do they have a very lucid view of what that problem is? And do they have the unique skill sets on the team to go out and solve it? Storytelling is so important because it's, to us, a leading indicator of how that founder will be able to attract and retain great talent, how they'll be able to sell customers, how they'll be able to convince even future investors to potentially join the company. One great story we'd heard recently, you know, we'd led the seed in the Series A of a company called Frame.io, which is in the video post-production and collaboration space. Emery Wells, the CEO there, is this remarkably authentic founder. You know, he comes in and shares the story about how he'd been a post-production engineer working on digital shorts for Saturday Night Live. And he'd lived the pain of being up and down the value chain for a large uh, content production company. He'd sat in so many different roles and so many different seats over the years. And had really built the first version of Frame.io to fill his own need and the needs of his team. You know, they wanted a much more agile way of delivering video. And he recognized that it was something that the broader market actually really wanted as well. He observed rightly that the incumbents in the category, you know, the Adobe's, the Sony's and the Apple's of the world, um, really had originally had built application software products versus having built true cloud services. Now, if you recall, Adobe grew up in the shrink wrap software days, uh, back when you would 
go to Best Buy or CompUSA and you, you know, buy physical CD-ROMs off the shelf and install them on your desktop. Um, well, Adobe's products hadn't changed considerably since then, uh, despite the fact that maybe the delivery model is, is slightly different. And what Emory observed was, you know, the market really wanted a cloud service that was collaboration native to satisfy how modern teams would be creating video. And oh, by the way, you know, video is this dominant application on web, web and mobile devices, and it's a, it exploding in terms of uh, creation and videos going horizontal. You know, everyone's creating video now. His co-founder, John Traver, was a, a really unique individual. He had studied motion picture science at RIT, which was this fascinating, you know, interdisciplinary field of computer science and graphics and motion art. And so if you're us, you, you know, you're sitting here listening to the story and it's like, wow, here's this founder with a very unique point of view on a market. And there's this technical co-founder here whose background is this very uh, highly applied science that is going to allow him to go out and solve some of the hard problems in this category. And, you know, it helped that as part of the pitch, they were using a lot of video to share the Frame.io story, you know, as you would expect of uh, guys in the video space. But you just got this sense that, you know, they'd be able to tell a very powerful story to the world. Vas, I uh, wanted to ask a little bit about scaling design teams. And you wrote an article a couple years back um, about one of your portfolio companies, I believe, Litmus, and it was titled Litmus and the Tech Talent Code. And in that article, you said that our best founders treat recruiting and talent as its own mini product line, building the processes and cultures to scalably attract the best. Uh, what are some effective ways that uh, design leaders can think about oper operationalizing, hiring, scaling teams? Well, we are in a fierce talent market right now, especially here in the Bay Area where I'm based. Um, but I'd say the, the labor market for engineering, product, and design is tightening in most markets right now. And as I've studied our best design teams who've been able to uh, hire and scale in spite of that, I, I've, noticed, I've noticed a few things. So one, you know, the head of design spends a significant percentage of their time on recruiting. Um, they're out meeting new designers. They're doing coffee chats. They are speaking at conferences to share uh, the interesting work that the team is doing. Um, they're actively trying to convince the market that if you were to join their team, you would have the opportunity to do the best and most creative work of your life. Um, and so I'd say as a whole, that it's just a fixed part of the job for a design leader is to really think about recruiting. Two, I'd say the team as a whole is sourcing talent globally. So in this market, you just have to import talent or be open to remote talent. As you start scaling a team from a handful to a few dozen, um, I think it's unlikely you will fill all of your open recs with just the talent in your home geo, uh, and that's Bay Area included. So I think you have to go outside your local networks to find incredible and diverse people. And three, um, everyone across the team is sharing. Uh, they're posting shots to dribble. They're sharing new interactions uh, that they've designed on Envision Studio. Um, they're just generally sharing their innovation publicly. And this is important because 
uh, designers want to see, wow, you know, this is this is an innovative company that's continuing to reinvent itself. Uh, or, hey, this is a product that's evolving. It's not just standing still. And that's, that's so important for prospective designers to know. So operationalizing and scaling teams means uh, it's all hands on deck. Um, everyone has a hand in building the team. And I'm convinced if teams are publicly sharing what they're working on, well, it's going to entice other great folks to want to join. Ivas, the, the software industry, I think, is unique um, in, in many ways uh, compared to most other industries out there. Um, the growth rate in our industry tends to just be insane. It's so big, so fast. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a bit about the inflection points that you see as companies grow, um, the key points that people should be aware of as, as a company grows, culture changes, or um, what are the challenges uh, with that growth? And then how does that affect individuals? Well, that's a great question. And it's something we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, and you could probably spend a whole podcast talking about what we've observed of our fastest scaling companies. Maybe I'll try and focus it in on what rapid growth means for product and design teams in particular. So the wonderful thing about software companies is you're able to build a product once, but sell it over and over again to many thousands of enterprises or many millions of consumers. Um, you know, the, the marginal distribution costs on web and mobile platforms are so low that you can credibly see a company scale from a million dollars in revenue its first year to 10 million its second year, especially if a product is able to find its audience. And part and parcel with this is companies are going global uh, maybe earlier than even they, even they intended. And so to your question, you know, we see companies scaling rapidly these days, both in quantity of customers, but also in diversity of customers. And so as a founder, you know, your initial wedge audience, the part of the market you knew very intimately, may no longer represent the majority of your revenue or your customer base. Um, in fact, it's very likely that the customer paying you your 10 millionth dollar uh, is going to look nothing like the customer that gave you your first dollar. And you know, those differences can look like any number of things. It, on the one hand, maybe you're starting to attract more mature customers. Uh, perhaps you started in the mid-market, but now you're supporting larger enterprises. Um, maybe you're attracting geographically diverse customers who have different needs around localization or want an ability to pay in their local currency. Um, maybe you started as a product that was targeting technical people, but now you're seeing non-technical people begin to adopt. You know, whatever it is, you're spreading into a customer base that probably doesn't map to the audience you were originally building for. And that's a challenge our teams have to be extremely vigilant about, you know, continuing to push yourself to understand how your customer base is evolving, uh, listening to them, doing recurring customer interviews. Uh, it's a one simple trick. You know, a lot of our companies actually put everyone in the org on the support desk. So everyone answers support tickets. And that's just a great way to sort of inject the voice of the customer uh, into the company in a very structural way. And so back to the earlier conversation around being customer centric, you know, especially as a company is growing and scaling rapidly past its initial audience, 
you have to find ways to structurally inject the customer's perspective into the company um, so that you can continue to grow and evolve. Great, great, Vas. So just a one kind of two-part question to wrap up with. Um, so you, you spend a lot of time learning about markets, <clears throat> trends, and technology and, and the work you do. Um, so for the first part, what, what learning hack helps you learn faster than other people? And then what are some of the things that you're, you're reading about these days? You know, we have uh, unlimited access to information and podcasts and blog posts. To, so to me, it's so much more about absorption. It's how you can uh, better retain and interconnect information. And there's nothing more important to that than just having a great night's sleep and eating well and exercising. You know, I'd rather be healthy and having read just a couple of things of substance than being widely read, but, you know, suffering from insomnia or a poor diet. I think relate, I think relatedly, and this is less about learning and maybe more about creative thinking is finding time to step away from work and just give your mind time and space to let ideas percolate. There's a reason you hear people coming up with new things or solving tricky problems when they're actually outside the office or away from the computer. So, that's something I try to put some intention around. I'm currently reading a great book. It's by a guy named Ben Rhodes, who was one of Obama's national security advisors and the communications lead in charge of speech writing. It's called The World As It Is. It's a really beautifully written memoir. And what's so fascinating is how deliberate the administration was with how it explained itself to the world. You know, the very particular words that they chose when they were communicating their stance on an issue or uh, their response to a particular world event. And so it's interesting to hear about the author's experience in writing Obama speeches and even how involved Obama was himself in editing his, his speeches, uh, especially in this day and age where you, know, you could argue word choice or factfulness uh, maybe has been taken for granted. It's wonderful. So thank you so much. Voss for being on the show, uh, sharing your insights. I love the uh, quality over quantity approach. I think I need to take that in my own reading list. I've got like 12 things and I'm a quarter of the way through right now. <laughs> so uh, I think that's great advice. And uh, yeah, we really appreciate you being here. And uh, thank you so much. Awesome. Great to connect. And thanks for having me. <laughs>